Well, we like to party. Does anybody object to that? Does anybody think we don't like to party as human beings? I'm talking about all of humankind. Everybody's in agreement. We're, we're good with the whole concept of party. Okay, well, I think you're correct, by the way. I have a couple of pictures here I want to show you about some pretty amazing big parties that happened. Uh, the first picture is actually Trafalgar Square. This was in London, and uh, it was a pretty special event that was taking place. It was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And the, the church that she was being you know, crowned was, would only hold a couple thousand if they crammed them into every corner and nook and cranny. So the people actually lined up all over the city. They had no hope of seeing anything that was going on, but their queen was being crowned. They had a new leader. It turned the city into a party. It was a celebration. Now, when we tend to celebrate and we have parties, we also like to dress up a little bit. So I want to show you a picture of the queen and her fancy duds. Um, this, this is like, wow, that's quite the outfit. Um, and she actually had to practice for months on how to wear that crown because it weighs 18 pounds. And how do you walk when you've got 18 pounds pulling your head one way and your body was supposed to go the other way? So she had to learn that. But this is the cost of being, you know, in a party. Another thing that we really like to do is to celebrate big, spectacular events, changes in history. This is a cool picture, and this is actually of Times Square in New York. Uh, you notice what's really missing a lot of in Times Square right there. Yeah, billboards, signs, flashy you know, theaters even. Uh, it's very different because this is actually from May the 8th, 1945. Does that date ring a bell for anyone here? It did this morning for the first service. May the 8th, 1945. What was the significance of that day? Yeah, it's VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. The war is over. There, it, imagine the people just being released from so much tension, wondering, is my son, my husband going to have to go across and die? And now they can party. Wow, this is like suddenly, this is not a bad reason to party, I think. There's also an iconic photo, which I did not use for various reasons, of the sailor kissing the nurse. But that exuberance, that just overwhelming joy that came out of the people at that event. Now, we, we like to celebrate even simple things. Um, I, I mentioned, you know, I've, I've had four children, and potty training is kind of a big deal. You did it! Yay! <laughs> That's part of, we celebrate things. And you're all laughing because you know exactly what I mean, and you actually appreciate that. But this next, we actually celebrate even, like, I, and I do, I find this silly every single time, is New Year's Eve. We've actually celebrated this, this significant moment, that second that it clicks from 11.59 to 12. I'm pretty sure that happens every day, twice. And yet we, we turn it into this giant party. This is a picture that you can see of uh, Sydney Harbour in Australia. You see the opera house there in the foreground. Um, that bridge is massive. Cruise ships and giant freighter ships can sail underneath that and not come close to it. And it, it, we've just covered in it explosions to celebrate the clock going tick. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm making fun of that. But then you also see in this next photo, you see the same celebration in London, England, um, coming full circle back to London. This is the Great Eye, the, the giant Ferris wheel on the Thames River uh, in London, and just festooned with fire uh, because we want to celebrate. Humans love to celebrate. And I, it should really not surprise us much then that since we're made in the image of God, that God likes the celebration too. If he made us and we're made in his image, A plus B equals party, yes! We learn in the book of Exodus that God has started three major parties in the Israelite calendar. They really, he put it part of their life. And these three parties, um, this is not something like we're used to. Like we, you know, we throw the extra day on New Year's Eve because people go too far and they need a day to recover. Um, but this is not what God is talking about. It's not like Canada Day for the Hebrew children where we have one day, we go, woohoo, and then we go back to work. Um, they actually, these celebrations were all about what God had done how he had changed their history, how he had brought them from one thing to another. And God said, we need to party together because you are no longer the same as you were. And when they partied, these, these three things, these celebrations were shindigs on a monumental scale. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, they're each a week long. That's the, they're partying for a week they shut down the other things. Now, I'm sure somebody had to go and feed the cow and the, the donkey, but they partied for a week celebrating what God had done in their lives and in their community and in their families. Add that to other things like, you know, the three-day Passover celebration or maybe Hanukkah or weddings. The weddings in the Jewish, you know, we've, we, I'll, I'll out them because I can. Um, we get Zoe and Isaac. Yay, they got engaged. Yay! <laughs> They put it on Facebook, so I'm not doing anything, I'm not blowing any secrets here. Um, but you know, a wedding party for us is like a really cool day where, you, you know, they get all dressed up and we do the ceremony and it's very meaningful and, and it's, it's, it's inviting God to be a part of what's going on in our lives intentionally and yet we do it for one day. That whole evening ends and we all go, oh, I'm glad that party's over and we go home. We had a good time, we got to celebrate with friends, but... We get to go home. A Jewish wedding is a little different. They would go for a whole week. Like they would party. And, and God was like totally endorsing this. Now how do I know that God endorsed a week-long wedding party? Well, what was the very first miracle that Jesus performed? The very first thing he did that was outside of natural, which we would now call supernatural, was what? Water into wine. And where was he? At a wedding party. Yes. <laughs> you know, God loves to celebrate. Jesus was in on that. And you got to remember, Jesus was the perfect Hebrew. He grew up with all these celebrations, with all these festivals. He knew and, and understood these things from the inside out. You know, we have a huge party coming up. The celebration that we actually put on our calendars, it lasts several days. And it's next weekend. Our culture has kind of adapted this, and they've made it their own thing. It, they talk about it being, yay, spring, or about new birth, uh, or, or about fertility, or whatever direction they want to go with it. But you know what? Easter is actually so much more than that. Easter is the ultimate in rebirth stories. 
Now, I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or your device, if you have that with you, and open your Bible app. And we're going to open our Bibles to Ezra chapter 6. We've been following along in this this story, this wonderful narrative of what God has been doing amongst the people of Israel to restore the worship and the sacrifices and, and restore a way to actually get right with God. But we're going to start off first, we're going to work on our memory verse. So I invite you to stand with me as we work on our memory verse, which is also taken from Ezra 7, which if you're cheating, it is actually probably across the page uh, when we pull it away from you. So we'll say this twice, and then we'll try and say it by memory. Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. All right, we'll say that one more time. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. All right, we're going to take that away and try not to cheat. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and teach his statutes and rules in Israel. All right, I can't even hide that I was totally cheating that one. Uh, this, the passage today is 16. This is God's powerful word. This is, is his law and his, his, what he de- desires for us. So let's read his word today. today. Uh, verse 16 of chapter 6. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. And as a sin offering for all the tribes of Israel, for all of Israel, the 12 male goats, according to the number of tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. You may be seated. We can focus in on this passage a little deeper. I want to dig in a little bit. Um, This may come a little bit less preachy, maybe more teachy, if you allow me that. Verse 16, and the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. It begins with this wonderful word, and, and in some different translations it says, then. Now we see something has changed gears here. That first word matters. God puts it in there on purpose. It's his inspired word. He chose this word. And, and refers back to something. Something else has happened. Are you aware of that? Do you know? So when you jump into the story, you actually realize there's more to the story. So and or then, you look back. What was it? What was that then? As we learned last week, the people had finally finished the temple structure. God had used pagan kings to preserve his stuff. God had used the pagan kings also to... Look after the instruments and the tools of the temple and worship and to supply the needs of the actual building itself. Finally, those pagan kings contributed to the worship and preparations for the sacrifice. And in return, they asked for prayers from a God they likely didn't even believe in. That verse continues, and the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles. Now, this is actually a fairly short list. 
And it doesn't represent the entire nation. It only represents those who are present at the celebration. It was not all the people of Israel because most of them were still in captivity. Most of them were not in the country yet. The pagan king was not present. But those who had made the tough journey from captivity back to the promised land as their first wave of preserved remnant. God had fulfilled his part of covenant to preserve a remnant of the people and that they would possess the land. Now, as we were told last week, this, this is kind of God. They, they were exiled because they were in kind of this heavenly parenting moment timeout. Uh, it's a pretty extreme timeout. Seventy years, an entire generation almost had passed away because there were those who still remembered what the former was like. The former temple was magnificent. It was huge, but it was not something that they said, hey, this is beautiful now. I love this. They actually weeped when they saw the new one. It continues on, the temple reconstruction, but now they're ready to be the promised people of God. Verse 16 continues. They celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Now, joy is a really wonderful word. It's a choice. It's, it's a deeper meaning. It has just this thing inside of you that joy comes out. It wells up from inside out. Happiness is kind of this thing that happens from the outside. It's, I can be really happy. I can be having a really great day, and then Aiden will come to me, my son, and say, I broke the window, Dad. I'm sorry. Suddenly, my happiness isn't so good. My happiness has changed. But my joy, on the other hand, has actually increased because my son has taken responsibility for what he fictitiously did, before anybody gets worried. Uh, <laughs> he's taken responsibility. And as a dad, my joy increases because he's owning up to what's gone on. Joy is different than happiness. Now, this celebration brought joy into the hearts of the people. It was the return to worship. It was focusing on relationship with the Most High God. This joy was a command of God, but also the byproduct of their being faithful to God. In several other places related to worship in the temple, there's joy in the doing. I'd invite you to turn with me back a few books in your Bibles to 1 Kings. So we go through Chronicles, 2 Kings, and then back to 1 Kings chapter 8. And as you see there in chapter 8, it's actually a fairly long passage, and we're going to look at verse 66. This is the first temple, Solomon, and this is what he talks about. This is the response of the people. On the eighth day, he sent the people away. They'd been celebrating. And they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. And if you flip forward a few books in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, so you go 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, chapter 30, and verse 21, oh sorry, verse 26, there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Now, this was not Solomon's temple. This was Hezekiah, the king. He'd made things right. 
He'd been putting things back in order, including the worship of God. They'd cleared out the city of the altars to other gods, and they'd tried to get straight and right with God again. And the people uh, had just, they'd spent seven days partying and celebrating the reinstitution of worship at the temple, and they felt it was going so well, they decided, let's have another seven days. Like, you just spent a week partying and celebrating and worshiping God, and now you add a whole new week. How's that? That's great. And then the government actually condoned this because they brought it up. You know, they're going to they're gonna celebrate the joy, great joy in Jerusalem. In our story here in Ezra, we see that they are having and experiencing great joy. The dedication of the house of God. And they enjoyed the presence of God. This is a response of God's people to being connected to their faithful creator. And it's natural. When we feel connected to God, joy comes out of us. My first observation, my first takeaway for you is this. God's faithfulness brings joy. God's faithfulness brings joy. God had brought about the fulfillment of his promise to the people. And here they are in the midst, and their response is joyful. Now the story does continue. Verse 17, they offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. That seems to me like quite a celebration. Now, Pastor John told us, a while back, that God loves barbecue. You remember that? God, in, God likes barbecue. And I agree. I think he does. But this particular celebration in Ezra's time paled in comparison to what had gone on previously. Under Solomon, when they built the temple and they brought and dedicated the place to God and worship and to Erasing the sin from the nation's lives. Solomon went all out. If you turn to me again, we can look back a few books to 1 Kings. Chapter 8. So we had read previously uh, a little earlier in it. Chapter 8 of 1 Kings. Verse 2, and all the men of Israel ascended, assembled to Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethnim which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and the, all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing a few sheep, so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. This is a big deal. This is the people bringing their worship to God, paying their penalty that they knew they would need to be right with God. As you continue on in the same, same passage there, we see in verse 63, Solomon, he's bringing the peace offering on behalf of the king as the leader. He's bringing the peace offering. So this is what Solomon brought, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. So suddenly this list of 100, 400 doesn't seem as big. 
But you know what? I think it's dangerous to compare the faith offerings of one person over another. As we looked, God is the only judge, and he can see and understand the heart of the human. He understands and knows what's going on inside. Solomon offered these gifts to the Lord out of his wealth. And maybe it did cost him. Maybe this was a sacrifice for him. But I do know, and we can contrast the two very visible images we have here of Solomon and his dedication to the temple and Ezra and and the exiles returned starting new again. Solomon was giving out of wealth and of power and of prestige and he had much. He spent nine years building the temple. And it was amazing. But the glory of the Lord was in the hearts of the people and in their approaching him and giving what they have. The people in Ezra's time had experienced poverty. They'd experienced danger. They'd experienced opposition. Highlighted, and and it's really highlighted, the faithful provision of God to make an impossible situation possible. The leaders and people, had, they had required, been required to respond and to act, but it was God who led them. And this sacrifice of the people, it cost them. It reminds me of another story. Happened in the same temple. Centuries later, Jesus is in the temple courts, and he's observing the sacrifices and the offerings of the people. In Luke 21, this is actually very close to where we had talked about uh, the triumphal entry. So this is right after the triumphal entry. So it happened this week. Luke 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. This might seem harsh to say, but Solomon spent nine years building the first temple, and it was tremendous. It was opulent. It was amazing. There was gold on everything. There was the finest of all the things, jewels and gems and the best materials that they could gather, period, anywhere. No expense was spared, and it took them nine years to construct this. But then we also see that it took Solomon 13 years to construct his own palace. There's a few more years of effort there. I don't know what it was like, but it raises a question for me. The effort was made in the midst of his wealth for Solomon, but honestly, what it cost him was less. These exiles that had returned... Ezra records for us, like Jesus had observed in this widow, they put everything in that they had and they celebrated with joy. What we offer God will cost us. Jesus offers a way that does not require the lamb and the bull and the sheep and the goat to be killed over and over and over again to pay the price for our sins. He did it once for all. He paid the price for what those animals actually represented, our sin. He took it on himself. He paid the cost for us. He paid the cost for me. We are paid for by that sacrificial blood of Jesus on the cross. That's what we look forward to. It is an irony. We call it Good Friday. But man, what came out of it was good. 
Now, this free gift of eternal life is offered to us. This sacrifice, this once for all, has taken away our sins. It is truly free, but I got to tell you, it will cost you. If you refuse this gift, it's possible, as Scripture even says, that you may gain the entire world. You may gather riches. You may get power. You may have popularity. You may have safety. You insert your thing here on the list. You may get all of that. But what about eternity? That's when the cost will be collected. If you refuse God, there is an eternal separation from the source of love, the source of peace, the source of grace, the source of true freedom. It's an eternity away from God. If we accept this gift, there's a cost. And it may be a heavy one. Our news has not done a great job of covering this, but there have been villages, entire villages, emptied and slaughtered because the only crime they did was proclaim the name of Jesus. And this is in the nation of Nigeria. It's been going on now. It may cost us our lives to follow Jesus. Canada is a pretty safe place. Not likely what the cost is going to be for us. But what is the cost for us? It could be in our prestige, our own pride. It could be that there's a contract that our business is working on and we know it's wrong and we need to withdraw. It could be uh, our family, our friends turning their backs on us or cutting off relationship with us. But I have to tell you, that cost is so small compared to an eternity in heaven. Living in the presence of Jesus, the source of love, the source of peace, the source of grace, and it overflows from one day into the next day, and it keeps going into eternity, a life eternal with a sense of purpose, a sense of relationship, and that relationship truly satisfies. What a glorious day that's going to be. The first take-home was God's faithfulness brings joy. The second take-home is this. The free gift of God costs you everything. Count the cost. Free gift of God costs you everything. Count the cost. Now, our final verse today is verse 18. Uh, We see that the plans of God continue, and they are for the good of the people. In verse 18, it says this, They set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Now, the priests and the Levites, they had been provided for in all ways. They, were, they, they got their food from the sacrifices that were brought in. Uh, what vegetables and things they were, get, they were allowed, not owning, but allowed to have a garden. And when they were not serving in a temple, that garden could be cultivated. They're a small micro farm, if you want to put it that way in today's idea. Um, but they were not allowed to have any of the inheritance of the promised land because they'd been set apart. They were privileged to serve in the presence of God at the temple. They were there to do specific works, to teach the people how to approach a holy God. They were tasked with the, the idea to help the people and protect the temple. But this was established a long time before in the book of Numbers, not in chapter 3 and chapters 8. These people, the Levites, they actually took the place of the Passover lamb. Remember the Passover in Egypt? 
What happened to the Egyptians or anyone who had not painted on the door the blood of the lamb? Their firstborn was taken. The Levites are the firstborn of Israel. They are the ones who God is setting aside and saying, they are going to be my servants. I'm not killing them, I'm putting them to work. And they're special. They're set aside. They were set apart to take on a work of continued service to God. Now, there's an easy parallel here that I could talk about for pastors and for missionaries and for teachers, where we're set apart to do a certain task for God. And I make that connection because it's true. But I also think there's more to this that should now be applied not just to those specialized positions, but to all of us. From the children who left here this morning to the oldest in the room, all of us have a job to do. All of us have a task to serve the king. Order is part of what God has created. He's not a God of disorder. The priest, the structure and the order of the priests and the Levites has been handed over to us. And Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5.16. He says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The light shining within us is the joy because of our salvation. Good works is what we're set before us to have in front of us to do, to serve God. For what purpose? Because it's a good thing to do? Well, it may be, but it's to give glory to God. It's part of our act of worship. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like the ordered life that the Levites and the priests had been given and have been called to, you and I have been called to do something similar. Thankfully, we're all called to do things differently and uniquely. We're all part of one body. Some of us are an ear. Some of us are a mouth. Some of us are a thumb. And there's a lot of other body parts. In 1 Corinthians 12, 16, it says this, If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make any sense unless it were actually be a part of the body. We need to be a part of what's going on. We all need to find the places that God has gifted us to serve in. And we need to do it with joy. The final point for today is this. In our first point, God's faithfulness brings joy. The free gift of God costs you everything. Count the cost was point two. Then the third thing, your take home is this. Serving God is serving people. We all have gifts, and we need to exercise them. Do you know your gifts? On the wall, just outside there in the hallway, across from the nursery, is the, the big, God's big story. And number six on there of God's big story is learn the way, discover your gifts. And I'd point you to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. I'm not going to read it now. I want you to look that up. Write it down. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. That applies to each of us who claim Christ as king. Now, Ezra and the remnant of the people of Israel, they sought to worship God and had to persevere through adversity, persecution, and opposition. So, too, we need to take the faithful word of the Father and trust to his provision. We need to count the cost of that free gift that God has given us through Jesus and serve God by serving those around us. We're going to be entering into a celebration in a few minutes. Right here, we have these three tables. They represent a celebration that, that is amazing. We don't approach it lightly. 
This is our salvation. This is what Ezra and Solomon and Hezekiah were partying for, was a connection back to God. This is part and symbolizing our connection to God, a release from sin. This is a huge celebration. Yes, it's somber in that it was horrible. The death on the cross was one of the worst things that humans have come up with. And Jesus willingly went there because he loved. He loved each of us. So before you take part in this, I want you to examine your hearts. Examine, do I know Jesus? Today's the great opportunity. Invite him in. Pray, Lord, forgive my sins. I stand before you guilty, and you've taken it away. Come into my life. Teach me how to be your child. Teach me how to be a part of the family of Christ. If you know Jesus and you come to communion, are you partaking the bread and the cup in a way that honors God? Is there a relationship that needs to be restored? Do you need to make things right? Scripture commands us, actually, in light of communion, if there's something wrong, you need to go make that right first and then come back being restored. And then you share the joy even more. So today, I'd caution you, if you need to go make something right, pass it by. Go make it right and then come back and celebrate. Restoration. We named a church after that. (laughs) That's what we need to do. We need to be restored. I'm excited for that. Pastor John is going to lead us in, in our communion. Remember, this week, God's faithfulness brings joy. The free gift of God costs you everything. Count the cost. Serving God is serving people. We need to obey Him.